Human Nature and Conduct, An Introduction to Social Psychology, Part 4, by John Dewey, published in 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Section 1. The Good of Activity, including Better and Worse, Morality of Process, Evolution and Progress, Optimism, Epicureanism, Making Others Happy. The foremost conclusion is that morals has to do with all activity into which alternative possibilities enter. For wherever they enter, a difference between better and worse arises. Reflection upon action means uncertainty and consequent need of decision as to which course is better. The better is the good. The best is not better than the good, but is simply the discovered good. Comparative and superlative degrees are only paths to the positive degree of action. The worse, or evil, is a rejected good. In deliberation, and before choice, no evil presents itself as evil. Until it is rejected, it is a competing good. After rejection, it figures not as a lesser good, but as the bad of that situation. Actually, then only deliberate action, conduct into which reflective choice enters, is distinctively moral, for only then does there enter the question of better and worse. Yet it is a perilous error to draw a hard and fast line between action into which deliberation and choice enter, and activity due to impulse and matter-of-fact habit. One of the consequences of action is to involve us in predicaments where we have to reflect upon things formerly done as matter of course. One of the chief problems of our dealings with others is to induce them to reflect upon affairs which they usually perform from unreflective habit. On the other hand, every reflective choice tends to relegate some conscious issue into a deed or habit henceforth taken for granted and not thought upon. Potentially, therefore, every and any act is within the scope of morals being a candidate for possible judgment with respect to its better or worse quality. It thus becomes one of the most perplexing problems of reflection to discover just how far to carry it, what to bring under examination, and what to leave to unscrutinized habit. Because there is no final recipe by which to decide this question, all moral judgment is experimental and subject to revision by its issue. The recognition that conduct covers every act that is judged with reference to better or worse, and that the need of this judgment is potentially coextensive with all portions of conduct, saves us from the mistake which makes morality a separate department of life. Potentially, conduct is 100% of our acts. Hence we must decline to admit theories which identify morals with the purification of motives, edifying character, pursuing remote and elusive perfection, obeying supernatural command, and acknowledging the authority of duty. 
Such notions have a dual bad effect. First they get in the way of observation of conditions and consequences. They divert thought into side issues. Secondly, while they confer a morbid exaggerated quality upon things which are viewed under the aspect of morality, they release the larger part of the acts of life from serious, that is moral, survey. Anxious solicitude for the few acts which are deemed moral is accompanied by edicts of exemption and baths of immunity for most acts. A moral moratorium prevails for everyday affairs. When we observe that morals is at home, wherever considerations of the worse and better are involved, we are committed to noting that morality is a continuing process, not a fixed achievement. Morals means growth of conduct in meaning. At least it means that kind of expansion in meaning, which is consequent upon observations of the conditions and the outcome of conduct. It is all one with growing. Growing and growth are the same fact expanded in actuality or telescoped in thought. In the largest sense of the word, morals is education. It is learning the meaning of what we are about and employing that meaning in action. The good, satisfaction, end of growth of present action in shades and scope of meaning is the only good within our control and the only one, accordingly, for which responsibility exists. The rest is luck, fortune. And the tragedy of moral notions, most insisted upon by the morally self-conscious, is the relegation of the only good which can fully engage thought, namely present meaning of action, to the rank of an incident of a remote good, whether that future good be defined as pleasure, or perfection, or salvation, or attainment of virtuous character. Present activity is not a sharp, narrow knife-blade in time. The present is complex, containing within itself a multitude of habits and impulses, it is enduring, a course of action, a process including memory, observation, and foresight, a pressure forward, a glance backward, and a look outward. It is of moral moment because it marks a transition in the direction of breadth and clarity of action or in that of triviality and confusion. Progress is present reconstruction adding fullness and distinctness of meaning and retrogression is a present slipping away of significance, determinations, and grasp. Those who hold that progress can be perceived and measured only by reference to a remote goal first confuse meaning with space, and then treat spatial position as absolute, as limiting movement, instead of being bounded in and by movement. There are plenty of negative elements due to conflict, entanglement, and obscurity in most of the situations of life, and we do not require a revelation of some supreme perfection to inform us whether or no we are making headway in present rectification. We move on from the worse and into, not just towards, the better, which is authenticated not by comparison with the foreign, but in what is indigenous. Unless progress is a present reconstructing, 
it is nothing if it cannot be told by qualities belonging to the movement of transition it can never be judged men have constructed a strange dream-world when they have supposed that without a fixed ideal of a remote good to inspire them they have no inducement to get relief from present troubles no desires for liberation from what oppresses and for clearing up what confuses present action the world in which we could get enlightenment and instruction about the direction in which we are moving only from a vague conception and unattainable perfection would be totally unlike our present world sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof sufficient it is to stimulate us to remedial action to endeavor in order to convert strife into harmony monotony into a variegated scene and limitation to expansion the converting is progress the only progress conceivable or attainable by man hence every situation has its own measure and quality of progress and the need for progress is recurrent and constant if it is better to travel than to arrive it is because traveling is a constant arriving while arrival that precludes further traveling is most easily attained by going to sleep or dying we find our clues to direction in the projected recollection of definite experienced goods not in vague anticipations even when we label the vagueness perfection the ideal and proceed to manipulate its definition with dry dialectic logic progress means increase of present meaning which involves multiplication of sensed distinctions as well as harmony and unification this statement may perhaps be made generally in application to the experience of humanity if history shows progress it can hardly be found elsewhere than in this complication and extension of the significance found within experience it is clear that such progress brings no surcease no immunity from perplexity and trouble if we wish to transmute this generalization into a categorical imperative we should say so act as to increase the meaning of present experience but even then in order to get instruction about the concrete quality of such increased meaning we should have to run away from the law and study the needs and alternative possibilities lying within a unique and localized situation the imperative like everything absolute is sterile till men give up the search for a general formula of progress they will not know where to look to find it a businessman proceeds by comparing today's liabilities and assets with yesterday's and projects plans for tomorrow by a study of the movement thus indicated in conjunction with study of the conditions of the environment now existing it is not otherwise with the business of living the future is a projection of the subject matter of the present a projection which is not arbitrary in the extent in which it divines the movement of the moving present the physician is lost who would guide his activities of healing by building up a picture of perfect health the same for all and in its nature complete 
and self-enclosed once for all. He employs what he has discovered about actual cases of good health and ill health, and their causes to investigate the present ailing individual so as to further his recovering. Recovering, an intrinsic and living process, rather than recovery, which is comparative and static. Moral theories, which, however, have not remained mere theories, but which have found their way into the opinions of the common man, have reversed the situation and made the present subservient to a rigid yet abstract future. The ethical import of the doctrine of evolution is enormous, but its import has been misconstrued because the doctrine has been appropriated by the very traditional notions which in truth it subverts. It has been thought that the doctrine of evolution means the complete subordination of present change to a future goal. It has been constrained to teach a futile dogma of approximation instead of a gospel of present growth. The usufruct of the new science has been seized upon by the old tradition of fixed and external ends. In fact, evolution means continuity of change, and the fact that change may take the form of present growth of complexity and interaction. Significant stages in change are found not in excess of fixity of attainment, but in those crises in which a seeming fixity of habits gives way to a release of capacities that have not previously functioned, in times, that is, of readjustment and redirection. No matter what the present success in straightening out difficulties and harmonizing conflicts, it is certain that problems will recur in the future in a new form or on a different plane. Indeed, every genuine accomplishment, instead of winding up an affair and enclosing it as a jewel in a casket for a future contemplation, complicates the practical situation. It effects a new distribution of energies which have henceforth to be employed in ways for which past experience gives no exact instruction. Every important satisfaction of an old want creates a new one, and this new one has to enter upon an experimental adventure to find its satisfaction. From the side of what has gone before, achievement settles something. From the side of what comes after, it complicates, introducing new problems, unsettling factors. There is something pitifully juvenile in the idea that evolution, progress, means a definite sum of accomplishment which will forever stay done, and which by an exact amount lessens the amount still to be done, disposing once and for all of just so many perplexities in advancing us just so far on our road to a final, stable, and unperplexed goal. Yet the typical nineteenth-century mid-Victorian conception of evolution was precisely a formulation of such a consummate juvenilism. If the true ideal is that of a stable condition free from conflict and disturbance, then there are a number of theories whose claims are superior to those of the popular doctrine of evolution. Logic points rather in the direction of Rousseau and Tolstoy, 
who would recur to some primitive simplicity, who would return from a complicated and troubled civilization to a state of nature. For certainly progress in civilization has not only meant increase in the scope and intricacy of problems to be dealt with, but it entails increasing instability. For in multiplying wants, instruments, and possibilities, it increases the variety of forces which enter into relations with one another and which have to be intelligently directed. Or again, Stoic indifference or Buddhist calm have greater claims, for it may be argued, since all objective achievement only complicates the situation, the victory of a final stability can be secured only by renunciation of desire. Since every satisfaction of desire increases force, and this in turn creates new desires, withdrawal into an inner passionless state, indifference to action and attainment, is the sole road to possession of the eternal, stable, and final reality. Again, from the standpoint of definite approximation to an ultimate goal, the balance falls heavily on the side of pessimism. The more striving, the more attainments, perhaps, but also assuredly the more needs and the more disappointments. The more we do and the more we accomplish, the more the end is vanity and vexation. From the standpoint of attainment of good that stays put, that constitutes a definite sum performed which lessens the amount of effort required in order to reach the ultimate goal of final good. Progress is an illusion. But we are looking for it in the wrong place. The World War is a bitter commentary on the 19th century misconception of moral achievement, a misconception, however, which it only inherited from the traditional theory of fixed ends, attempting to bolster up that doctrine with aid from the scientific theory of evolution. The doctrine of progress is not yet bankrupt. The bankruptcy of the notion of fixed goods to be attained and stably possessed may possibly be the means of turning the mind of man to a tenable theory of progress, to attention to present troubles and possibilities. Adherence of the idea that betterment, growth and goodness, consists in approximation to an exhaustive, stable, immutable end or good, have been compelled to recognize the truth that, in fact, we envisage the good in specific terms that are relative to existing needs, and that the attainment of every specific good merges insensibly into a new condition of maladjustment with its need of a new end and a renewed effort. But they have elaborated an ingenious dialectical theory to account for the facts while maintaining their theory intact. The goal, the ideal, is infinite. Man is finite subject to conditions imposed by space and time. The specific character of the ends which man entertains and of the satisfaction he achieves is due therefore precisely to his empirical and finite nature in its contrast with the infinite and complete character of the true reality, the end. Consequently, when man reaches what he had taken to be the destination of his journey, 
he finds that he has only gone a piece on the road. Infinite vistas still stretch before him. Again he sets his mark a little way further ahead, and again, when he reaches the station set, he finds the road opening before him in unexpected ways, and sees new, distant objects beckoning him forward. Such is the popular doctrine. By some strange perversion, this theory passes for moral idealism. An office of inspiration and guidance is attributed to the thought of the goal of ultimate completeness or perfection. As a matter of fact, the idea sincerely held brings discouragement and despair, not inspiration or hopefulness. There is something either ludicrous or tragic in the notion that inspiration to continued progress is had in telling man that no matter what he does or what he achieves, the outcome is negligible in comparison with what he set out to achieve, that every endeavor he makes is bound to turn out a failure compared with what should be done, that every attained satisfaction is only forever bound to be only a disappointment. The honest conclusion is pessimism. All is vexation, and the greater the effort, the greater the vexation. But the fact is that it is not the negative aspect of an outcome, its failure to reach infinity, which renews courage and hope. Positive attainment, actual enrichment of meaning and powers, opens new vistas and sets new tasks, and creates aims and stimulates new efforts. The fact are not such as to yield unthinking optimism and consolation, for they render it impossible to rest upon attained goods. New struggles and failures are inevitable. The total scene of action remains as before, only for us more complex and more subtly unstable. But this very situation is a consequence of expansion, not of failures of power, and when grasped and admitted, it is a challenge to intelligence. Instruction in what to do next can never come from an infinite goal, which for us is bound to be empty. It can be arrived only from study of the deficiencies, irregularities, and possibilities of the actual situation. In any case, however, arguments about pessimism and optimism based upon considerations regarding fixed attainment of good and evil are mainly literary in quality. Man continues to live because he is a living creature, not because reason convinces him of the certainty or probability of future satisfactions and achievements. He is instinct with activities that carry him on. Individuals here and there cave in, and most individuals sag, withdraw, and seek refuge at this and that point. But man as man still has the dumb pluck of the animal. He has endurance, hope, curiosity, eagerness, and love of action. These traits belong to him by structure, not by taking thought. Memory of the past and foresight of the future convert dumbness to some degree of articulateness. They illumine curiosity and steady courage. 
when the future arrives with its inevitable disappointments as well as its fulfillments and with new sources of trouble failure loses something of its fatality and suffering yields fruit of instruction not of bitterness humility is more demanded at our moments of triumph than at those of failure for humility is not a caddish self-depreciation it is the sense of our slight inability even with our best intelligence and effort to command events a sense of our dependence upon forces that go their way without our wish or plan its purport is not to relax effort but to make us prize every opportunity of present growth in morals the infinitive and the imperative develop from the participle the present tense perfection means perfecting fulfillment fulfilling and the good is now or never idealistic philosophies those of plato aristotle spinoza like the hypothesis now offered have found the good in meanings belonging to a conscious life a life of reason not in external achievement like it they have exalted the place of intelligence in securing fulfillment of conscious life these theories have at least not subordinated conscious life to external obedience not thought of virtue as something different from excellence of life but they set up a transcendental meaning and reason remote from present experience and opposed to it or they insist upon a special form of meaning and consciousness to be obtained by peculiar modes of knowledge inaccessible to the common man involving not continuous reconstruction of ordinary experience but its wholesale reversal they have treated regeneration change of heart as wholesale and self-enclosed not as continuous the utilitarians also made good and evil right and wrong matters of conscious experience in addition they brought them down to earth to everyday experience they strove to humanize otherworldly goods but they retained the notion that the good is future and hence outside the meaning of present activity in so far as it is sporadic exceptional subject to accident passive an enjoyment not a joy something hit upon not a fulfilling the future end is for them not so remote from present action as a platonic realm of ideals or as the aristotelian rational thought or the christian heaven or spinoza's conception of the universal woe but still it is separate in principle and in fact from present activity the next step is to identify the sought-for good with the meaning of our impulses and our habits and the specific moral good or virtue with learning this meaning a learning that takes us back not into an isolated self but out into the open-air world of objects and social ties terminating in an increment of present significance doubtless there are those who will think that we thus escape from remote and external ends only to fall into an epicureanism which teaches us to subordinate everything else to present satisfactions 
the hypothesis preferred may seem to some to advise a subjective self-centered life of intensified consciousness an aesthetically dilettante type of egoism for is not its lesson that we should concentrate attention each upon the consciousness accompanying his action so as to refine and develop it is not this like all subjective morals and antisocial doctrine instructing us to subordinate the objective consequences of our acts those which promote the welfare of others to an enrichment of our private conscious lives it can hardly be denied that as compared with the dogmas against which it reacted there is an element of truth in epicureanism it strove to center attention upon what is actually within control and to find the good in the present instead of in a contingent uncertain future the trouble with it lies in its account of present good it failed to connect this good with the full reach of activities it contemplated good of withdrawal rather than of active participation that is to say the objection to epicureanism lies in its conception of what constitutes present good not in its emphasis upon satisfaction as at present the same remark may be made about every theory which recognize the individual self if any such theory is objectionable the objection is against the character or quality assigned to the self of course an individual is the bearer or carrier of experience what of that everything depends upon the kind of experience that centers in him not the residence of experience counts but its content what's in the house the center is not the abstract amenable to our control but what gathers about it is our affair we can't help being individual selves each one of us if selfhood as such is a bad thing the blame lies not in the self but with the universe with providence but in fact the distinction between a selfishness with which we find fault and an unselfishness which we esteem is found in the quality of the activities which proceed from and enter into the self according as they are contractive exclusive or expansive and outreaching meaning exists for some self but this truistic fact doesn't fix the quality of any particular meaning it may be such as to make the self small or such as to exalt or dignify the self it is as impertinent to decry the worth of experience because it is connected with a self as it is fantastic to idealize personality just as personality aside from the question what sort of person one is other persons ourselves too if one's own present experience is to be depreciated in its meaning because it centers in a self why act for the welfare of others selfishness for selfishness one is as good as another our own is worth as much as another's but the recognition that good is always found in a present growth of significance in activity protects us from thinking that welfare can consist in a soup-kitchen happiness 
in pleasures we can confer upon others from without. It shows that good is the same in quality wherever it is found, whether in some other self or in one's own. An activity has meaning in the degree in which it establishes and acknowledges a variety and intimacy of connection. As long as any social impulse endures, so long an activity that shuts itself off will bring inward dissatisfaction and entail a struggle for compensatory goods, no matter what pleasures or external successes acclaim its course. To say that the welfare of others, like our own, consists in a widening and deepening of the perceptions that give activity its meaning, in an educative growth, is to set forth a proposition of political import. To make others happy, except through liberating their powers and engaging them in activities that enlarge the meaning of life, is to harm them and to indulge ourselves under cover of exercising a special virtue. Our moral measure for estimating any existing arrangement or any proposed reform is its effect upon impulse and habits. Does it liberate or suppress, ossify or render flexible, divide or unify interest? Its perception quickened or dulled, is memory made apt and extensive, or narrow and diffusively irrelevant? Is imagination diverted to fantasy and compensatory dreams, or does it add fertility to life? Is thought creative or pushed one side into pedantic specialism? There is a sense in which to set up social welfare as an end of action only promotes an offensive condescension, a harsh interference or an oleaginous display of complacent kindliness. It always tends in this direction when it is aimed at giving happiness to others directly, that is, as we can hand a physical thing to another. To foster conditions that widen the horizon of others and give them command of their own powers, so that they can find their own happiness in their own fashion, is the way of social action. Otherwise, the prayer of a free man would be to be left alone, and to be delivered above all from reformers and kind people. End of Part 4, Section 1, The Good of Activity